Hello everyone, welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. So guess what is happening um, with Gavin Newsom? Guess what his latest move is? Because he's fixed all the problems in California. Everything's perfect. The homelessness crisis has been fixed. Housing is plentiful and affordable. No more problems with the energy grid. Crime is basically eliminated. It's all fantastic because he now has decided he's not going to bother with California anymore. Instead, he set up a new political organization to go and take his brilliant examples of leadership uh, to red states because that's that's really uh, what he should be focusing on. He's now uh, devoting his time to attacking red states, a new war on red states by Gavin Newsom because everything is fixed in California. That's the latest. Unbelievable, but it's true. Uh, we'll be talking about it in a moment with Jessica Milan Patterson, who's of course the chair of the California GOP and also has some really interesting information for us about why California will actually play a really significant role, unlike previous presidential races in the primary that will select the candidate uh, for president on the Republican side. The big change in how the election works. She's going to explain what that's all about. But first, um, we're joined by our friend Susan Shelley. We never run out of things to talk about with Susan in great detail, uh, who does the work, finds out exactly what's going on. And there's a couple of things today, Susan, we're going to get into. One is this, we've been hearing about the headlines, and it's another one of those, oh my gosh, what are they doing now? What a, what a crazy thing this is. It's the mansion tax, as it's been called, in Los Angeles. And there's been a flurry of articles about how kind of rich people are trying to sell their homes uh, quickly to avoid this tax. But you've got some such interest. You've got such an interesting uh, set of information to share with us on that. And then, again, something we've talked about um, at the kind of high level, but but not got into the details enough, which is what they're doing uh, here in California with the oil companies. Um, and exactly how their new scheme to um, what they say is hold the oil companies accountable for their dastardly deeds, how that exactly will work. Really interesting. Let's start with the mansion tax. What's that all about? Well, this is a so-called citizens initiative that was on the ballot in the city of Los Angeles in November, and it was called by its proponents the mansion tax. But actually, it's not a tax just on luxury real estate. It's a tax on all properties sold in the city of Los Angeles. Office buildings, movie theaters, restaurants, hotels, apartments, apartment developments. 4% if it sells between 5 million and 10 million and then it So this is on the on the sale price. The, so the tax comes in so at it, the point that that you This is on or the sale the, price. Whoever sells it, that's when you pay the tax, right? Right. Exactly. So it's paid at the close of escrow. This is a real estate transfer tax, and it's a real estate transfer tax for a special purpose, which is unconstitutional, but I'll come back to that. So the special purpose is to fund a bunch of nonprofit service providers and nonprofit affordable housing developers. The money is directed through a governing board of them to themselves in contract. Wait, they put this so on the ballot. They wrote a tax that taxes they put this on the ballot. They paid to put it on the ballot to get the signatures to put it on the ballot. They paid for the campaign. <gasps> they convinced people it was a mansion tax to solve homelessness. And actually what it is, is a giant real estate transfer tax. No, it's amazing. I didn't even know that. You see, this is what I mean. Yeah. That when you get into the detail, it's always worse than, than it even looks. It's totally corrupt. It's so much worse. You know, we... We've already had two taxes in the city of Los Angeles to, quote, solve homelessness. One was uh, measure HHH, which was $1.2 billion of borrowed money to build housing, which is coming in at $600,000 a unit on average. How's that going? Mm -hmm. And then the other one was a sales tax increase to fund services. And as soon as that passed, there was a giant job fair <laughs> for administrators and executives no and middle management people to collect these salaries. Right, it probably, but it's just a bunch of salaries for people who push digital paper across the desk and not so much the services, and the problem's much worse. And so this is another tax on real estate transfers to fund contracts mm -hmm. for construction of these housing developments, $600,000 a unit, and uh, so-called tenant protections, which amounts to preventing evictions of people who are not paying rent. They want, to, they want to lawyer up and keep people from being evicted if they're not paying rent. Well, how does that work out if you're a property owner and you can't collect rent on your property? You're going to get out of that business. 
anybody would get out of that business. If you can't get the revenue that, that says the contract says you can get, and you can't get it because the city tax is funding a bunch of people who are going to just take you to court on everything till it's more expensive to fight it than it is to just close the business. That's so can happen. I just, before we get to the unconstitutional part, um, let's just, I want to really make sure I've understood this. So the developer part, I think I understand, which is, so there'll be a certain amount of money raised, and then that goes directly to the, to, you said the non-profits and the, and the affordable housing. It's required so, to go so, to that, So-called yes. affordable housing right. um, developers. So the developers part, so, so they get the money, and then they build the homes for ex extraordinary cost because everything costs so much because of all the reasons we know, um, including regulation and, and and, and actually, the, the, the fact that a lot of these developers are hoarding the property, I mean, it's they, they, because they, they don't really want to build affordable property don't, uh, homes, do they? They, well, they, want to, they want to make money. There's a lot of consultants in the process yeah. who are getting huge contracts before anything is built. So, yes, a lot of people are making money off of so this. So what's the other part of it? How does that work? I mean, is it the, the non-profits who get some of this money for work with the homeless people, is that right? And is that the tenant, is it just this tenant protection or is there more to I that? I think it's the tenant protection and also homeless service providers, uh, right. which are these nonprofits that have the huge city contracts. You know, I just got a press release. So they're already getting money from the city. They're already getting tax revenue, as it were, uh, because well, they get it from the city budget. They just started collecting the tax April 1st. So anything, No, but I mean, it, 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 they're, oh, they're the existing provider. Yes, they're already exactly. getting it. They're already yeah. getting huge contracts. In fact, I just right. got a press release from a Hollywood press agent, a Hollywood publicity <laughs> firm with offices on Sunset Boulevard and in Toronto and in New York. And they were representing one of these homeless service providers. <laughs> That's supposedly helping homeless youth. You know, I, I'm all for helping homeless youth, but why are they paying a Hollywood publicist to send me press releases? What is going on with the money that we're spending, that we're taxing people to collect? What is going on here? That's such a brilliant story. It, it just so perfectly encapsulates <laughs> the complete madness and corruption and mismanagement. It's the second Steve, it's the second time. I got one from another homeless service provider. They hired a publicist on Park Avenue in New York <laughs> to send me a press release about the wonderful work that they're doing and what I'm pleased to do a story about it. I mean, it's just amazing. Really? It's amazing. I'll do a story, but you so won't, we won't like actually, it. We'll take taxpayer money. We won't actually solve the homelessness crisis because, as everyone can see, it's got worse and worse the more right. of this money that's been spent. But then in order to try and make people think that we're doing a great job and therefore deserve more taxpayer money, we're going to spend the taxpayer money that we already have on hiring Hollywood publicists. To Hollywood public, to Park people, Avenue and Hollywood. How great we're doing on fighting homelessness. Meanwhile, there's probably homeless encampment literally outside the building where the Hollywood publicists work. Probably, not far. <laughs> it's just amazing. I mean, it's just it, amazing. It's and just, so the thing awful. is that you, uh, this is a scam. And, and of course, this one presumably was sold on the basis of, I mean, people, we've got to say people voted for this, right? People voted um, for this. And it was tax the rich to pay for homeless. That's why, you know, it's, it's, it's to help homeless. That's how it was yeah. presented. That's how it was presented. But in fact, it's not a tax just on residences. It's a tax on all real estate. So it doesn't just cover mansions, it covers apartment buildings. So let's say you're a developer and you've got a project you're going to build from the ground up and it's going to be mixed use, housing, retail, it's a wonderful project. Your plan is to build it and then sell it. It no longer pencils out because now it's got this five and a half percent tax if it's over ten million dollars because it's a big development. In the city of Los Angeles, ten million dollars is easily achieved in a big commercial project like that. So it's five and a half percent out of what you thought you were going to be able to sell this for, and they're not going forward, and the financing is falling through, and it's just so a actually mess. It, it 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 will less housing right. not it, more it housing. It actually means that less housing is going to be built. It's a disincentive to build right. housing, just general housing, right. which we have a massive Absolutely. shortage of. I mean, we've talked about this before. This conflation of the housing crisis with the homelessness crisis is just completely wrong. Yes, we do have a housing crisis in the sense that. It's just increasingly unaffordable for regular working people in California to buy a home. It's just unaffordable. That's right. a crisis. But part of the California dream is owning your own home um, and, and the kind that you want in the place you want. That's part of the California dream. It's completely out of reach for millions of people. We've got to do something about it. That's a problem in its own right.
um, the homelessness crisis is also a crisis that needs to be dealt with in its own right. And there, the solutions, as we've many times discussed, things like, well, we, I mean, as you brilliantly outlined last week, I mean, it's burned in my mind now, the three-point plan, the Susan Shelley three-point plan to fix the homelessness crisis, which is to reverse its, let's see if I've remembered it, SB 1380. Right. Exactly there you are. right. I passed. SB, that's the housing first requirement that doesn't let you exclude anyone for being on drugs and alcohol and doesn't allow you to require anyone yes. to be in a program. Second point, which right. which was the getting an, a waiver. I can't remember the exact acronym, but it was a waiver from federal Medicaid, Medicare, Medicaid to enable men, um, right. that some of that federal money to be used to build and run large, large hospitals, hospitals for people with exactly. mental health problems. Um, and then the final part was to be able to build actual shelter, not the $600,000, you know, apartments that are never going to get built to house people who are sleeping right. on the streets, but actual shelter that is much cheaper and can be done quickly. And that means that you can actually require people, you can actually enforce local ordinances against camping because you've got shelter available exactly. and therefore that complies with the Boise ruling. Um, have I passed the test? Is that right? Very that's good. Exactly okay. perfect. So that's, so we need to do that, all that. But this is about but how and, and actually what so here we have a classic situation of California kind of total policy incoherence where something that they've put forward in the name of fixing the homelessness crisis actually makes it harder to deal with the housing crisis. Ugh. Exactly. So you have this huge tax, which is knocking out private sector apartment construction. And then supposedly you're going to build this government quasi-government housing, but then you're going to have your housing first requirements so that people who can come into it are not going to be in any kind of program for alcoholism yes. or treatment yes. for anything. So now you're going to have chaos in the project because even if a small percentage of people are troubled, it's going to create chaos for the entire building. And, and it's just a recipe for failure at every level. And what was the unconstitutionality? Talk about that for a bit. The unconstitutionality is that in 1978, Proposition 13, which stopped these huge increases mm -hmm. in property taxes, had this provision in it to prevent the politicians from passing other taxes that were the same thing oh. on the same people but by another name. So one of the things that's prohibited by Prop 13, now the state constitution, is a real estate transfer tax. It's just flatly prohibited. However, in the 1990s, activist judges carved some loopholes. They've been hacking at this ever since. So one of the loopholes carved in the 1990s said that some cities are allowed to do real estate transfer taxes for a general purpose. It goes into the mm -hmm. general fund for any purpose that the city council wants. They're allowed to do that. But they're not allowed to do a real estate transfer tax for a special purpose like Measure ULA. And there was another court decision in 2017, where the, the California State Supreme Court sort of kind of suggested in a decision related to cannabis, totally unrelated to property tax, they sort of suggested that if a citizen's initiative raises taxes, all those constitutional requirements hmm. don't apply. And this was tested in the courts. In fact, in San Francisco, the city super, the county supervisors, the city council and the county supervisors mm -hmm. are the same in San Francisco. They actually, as citizens, the government officials wrote a citizen's initiative to, I think it was a tax on commercial real mm -hmm. estate leases, business leases in San Francisco to fund child care and early education, a, a, a special purpose real estate transfer tax. And not a real estate, a special purpose commercial lease tax. Passes with the narrowest possible simple majority, 50.8%. It's challenged in the courts by the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, but the courts smiled at this and said, that's fine. That's fine because it's a citizen's wink-wink initiative. So Measure ULA is a citizen's wink-wink initiative to fund all of these nonprofits, and it passed with a simple majority, but not the two-thirds that's required by Prop 13. So there are several ways that this can be declared invalid. It's invalid because it's a real estate transfer tax for a special purpose. It's invalid because it didn't get the two-thirds vote. And there's going to be something on the ballot in 2024 called the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act that says very clearly two-thirds means two-thirds, whether it's a citizen's initiative or it's not. So that's a, an effort to close some of these loopholes, that one and others, that these courts mm -hmm. keep opening up in taxpayer protections. You know, people don't understand that the Constitution can't be overridden by a simple majority vote. 
you can't just have a vote for these people to tax those people by 50% plus one vote if it violates the Constitution. The Constitution is over that. It's, this is not a pure democracy in the sense that anyone can vote for anything and no one has any rights if they do. So the basic taxpayer protections that are in the Constitution are the law. And that's the first law. That's the top law. And these other things that people are doing, if they violate the Constitution, they'll be found invalid. We hope. But the judges don't always, they don't always follow the Constitution. And that's why this has been whack-a-mole between the taxpayers and the tax raisers since 1978. Really? That's a masterclass. Thank you so much. I've got a few questions. Um, mm -hmm. Because it actually opens up a really interesting uh, topic, which, well, first of all, very bit broad, general point. When you're talking about the Constitution here, in, in all of that, you're talking about the California State Constitution. And that exactly just reminds us how important it is to pay attention to what's going on at the state level. And it, and that's why I'm so happy to be doing this show. And I hope people who are listening are happy that we're doing it because so much of it just reminds us so much of what affects our lives here is determined by all this stuff, which barely gets covered um, in the media. And of course, I'm as you know, I, I, I on the other, other hat on, I, I do a national media show and it's a national audience. But the, increasingly, I think the, the, the political conversation in America is is centralized, federalized, whatever we call it. We're all talking about, you know, whatever it is, Trump being indicted or whatever. And, and, and all of this stuff just happens that, that actually affects our lives. And it's all this incredibly important detail of what goes on at the state level. And because it's complicated and and fiddly and all these different things that you have a brilliant memory for, you know, people just tune it out or they or they didn't know in the first place. So that's a very general point, how, how we have to pay attention to the state constitution and so on. Second point is... So it looks like what's happened here is, so the Howard Job, by the way, is Howard Job, was he the guy that did Prop 13? Is that why it's called that? That's right, isn't it? Yes. Yes, yes. He was the, he was the guy. He was the guy with the fist saying, the taxpayers, <laughs> the taxpayers have right. had enough of this. We, the taxpayers, we're mad as hell and we're not right. going to take so it anymore. So that was 1978, correct? Yeah. And Prop 13 was the limit on property tax. And that went into Correct. the state constitution. That was what the right. Yes. Now, did it, and did and, and we always think about prop prop thirteen in terms of property tax, but did it put all these other restraints on tax raising as well? Not just it wasn't yes, it just did. property tax. Right. It said that when the state legislature is looking at a statewide tax increase, it must get a two thirds vote in each house of the legislature. That was in Prop 13. And when local taxes are going to be raised, that must get a two-thirds vote of the state, of the, of the local electorate. So taxes have to go on the ballot. Now, there was another 1982. Prop 13 was 1978. An activist judge looked at it in 1982 and said, well, if it's a tax for a special right. purpose in the local level, it needs two-thirds. But if it's a general tax, I only see. a simple majority. They just made that so, up out of the air. Well, that's so my that's that's sort of set of questions, which is so, so actually that, by the way, that's really interesting in itself. I think I have, again, it's just, you know, really kind of clarifying this material. Um, I think I had read that that's not complete news to me that it's not just property tax this two-thirds point i didn't actually realize it was local as well so that that's really interesting what a, what an important landmark ruling uh, sorry result prop 13 was and very and very broad to protect taxpayers mm -hmm. at the state and local level now let's move on to the ero and you know it, re it remains popular even now. It still is supported by two-thirds of California voters, just like it was in 1978. And, right. And now, well, sorry, not now, since then, starting with this ruling in 1982, what we've seen is an erosion of that, those protections at the hands of exactly. state judges, local judges. The question I've got about that, again, this is something I think people don't really you know, follow very closely. Are these judges politically appointed are they elected you know who are these judges well the state supreme court is appointed and then confirmed uh, they're appointed by the governor and confirmed by the state just Senate. like the supreme court so i believe so yeah and uh, local judges are they have to stand for election i think they're appointed initially and then they have to stand for election to so, I mean, is it the case that the, the California Supreme Court, which honestly, I, we've never talked about really on the show, we've never done an episode on it, but perhaps we should, you know, who, literally, who are these people? 
um, who you know who were they appointed by? I mean, because of the political. Well, are there any on the court now that were appointed by the last Republican governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger? I'm not sure. It's, it's been a while since there were any Republicans, and the appellate courts have gone very, very anti-taxpayer mm -hmm. on us. So, uh, for instance, Measure ULA and this San Francisco decision that preceded it, the appellate courts have been, uh, they've been ruling that it's okay. That if it's a citizens' yeah. initiative tax increase, so they've eroded that's it just fine. because they're basically just, you know they're, they're left wing it. judges. I mean, let's just be you know appointed by Democrats. They're very anti. Yeah. Okay. Great. Now, I think we. Well, I want to get to the the oil company story, what they're doing there, but I do just want to quickly note because it sounds really important what you what you mentioned, which is the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act. So that's a ballot initiative for twenty twenty four. Is it? Yes, that has qualified for the ballot. It will be on the November 2024 ballot, and it does several things. One is it says two-thirds mm -hmm. means two-thirds, so no matter how a measure gets on the local ballot, it needs two-thirds. It says that a fee is a tax and a mm -hmm. charge is a tax. It tries, to, it tries to get rid of some of these redefinitions that say, oh, well, this doesn't have to go on the ballot because mm -hmm. this isn't a tax. It's a tax. If it quacks like a tax, it's a tax. And it uh, requires something new. It requires voter approval of statewide tax increases. So in addition to the two-thirds mm -hmm. vote in each house, voters would have to this vote This is a really big deal. Is this Howard Jarvis yes, um, behind that? Yes, it is. It's Howard Jarvis and also the California Business Roundtable and other business groups. Very we should do a whole episode these, these just on that. Decisions. Make sure everyone understands. It's, it's been a really, it's been a real battle. And as you said, all these things are kind of fiddly when you go through the details of them. They sound kind of technical. But what it adds up to is you get a you get a property tax bill, or you're paying a sales tax, or you're paying more for yeah. the products you buy, and you're thinking, why exactly. is this happening? Exactly. Why is it so much more expensive in California than everywhere else? Exactly. This is this is, and this is why we got to pay attention and get engaged and understand it, and and then support things that are trying to do something about it. Um, brilliant. Let's 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 exactly. park that for a moment. And let's move on to the the what they've done with the oil companies. We talked about the, the, this a little bit before. This is under the guise of price gouging, uh, fight their war on pri price gouging by the oil companies. We've made the general point before that, um, of course, it's it's you know when you when you fill up your car with gas in California, you pay more to the government than anywhere else in the country. It's the direct taxes, but it's also the regulations that mean the price is high because of the requirements on refining and so on. Added to that, their um, war on energy generally, which means that the, 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 the price goes up because it's being squeezed. So you've got all these factors. Oh, and, and, the, and, and the, their, um, you know, the um, war on California production, which means that the, I mean, this is the, the number that I cited the other day, which I couldn't, when you know, look it up, which is the massive increase in the proportion of the oil and gas that we use in California that is now imported rather than produced domestically, as it were, domestically in terms of California. The, 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 in the last 25 years, it's gone up from 12% to 50%, a massive increase in imports, which are going to be more expensive. So um, for all those reasons, they're the ones that are actually incre increasing the price. But exactly right. Let's exactly now, let, right. okay, so putting that aside, just take us through the detail of what they're doing as part of this thing that they've just passed in the legislature and Gavin Newsom has just signed? Well, every time people in California get upset about rising gas prices, the governor stands up and pounds his fist and says, we're going to stop these oil companies from price gouging. And he orders an investigation. The last one was in 2019. Guess what it found? It wasn't the oil companies. It was the California policies that were making the price so high. But as if that never happened, he mm -hmm. did it again this time. And before the 2020 election, he pounded his fist on the table and he said, price gouging, and we're going to have a special session and we're going to do a windfall yes. profit. Sorry, it's not a 22 election. It was last year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 22 election. I'm sorry. Yes, I've, <laughs> I've lost my place. 22 election. So he... He announced that we're going to have a windfall profits tax, but as we were just discussing, a tax increase takes a two-thirds vote in each house, and he didn't have that. So then it was going to be, uh, he was going to call it a yes. penalty fee instead of a tax, and perhaps he could have gotten that through with a 50% plus one, but maybe not because he probably would have been sued. So what we ended up with, they just rushed through in one week, empowers the regulators to do the same thing. So this new law says that the oil industry must share confidential business information 
with the California Energy Commission, which must share it with the legislature and all the staffers in the policy committees and the assembly speaker, and everybody gets to look at the confidential business information so they can determine whether these companies are making excess profits as they will define them. They haven't defined it yet, but they're going to. They're going to define what is an excess profit. And then this will be enforced with penalty fees, and the penalty fees go into the, quote, price gouging fund, and then the legislature gets to spend the money from the price gouging fund. What could possibly I mean, do you know what all this reminds me of? I mean, the whole thing is it's so laughably... I don't know what the word. I mean, it's it's just it. it well, it's Soviet. Well, it's definitely Soviet, it but it's is. also it's, it's it's like it's 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 kind of in, you know sophomoric. You know, it's just like like people who are playing politics, and so you know because they have no constraint, no accountability, they do what they want. Oh, I know. Let's. It's just not serious. I mean, it's, it's very serious for the oil companies and the and the precedent it sets for other business sectors. That that, that now you're just going to have to, you know, hand over all your all your um, confidential business information to to to, to a bunch of you know, state legislatures and their staffs, you know, it's like their kids just sort of mucking about with, with government, you know, like they're, they're not really serious. You, you know, know, they, the consequences will be very severe and the consequences won't happen right away because it'll take them, oh, a couple of years, you know, to define excess profits and a couple of years to figure out how they're going to formulate these penalties. But eventually, what you're going to see is that the oil companies are going it's to exactly. disinvest in California, and you'll see fewer refineries, which means we're going to have more shortages yes, and, and more higher imports. prices. Uh huh. And it's just going to make everything more expensive. It's going to completely yes. defeat the purpose of what supposedly the law was. As all and the imports are coming on ships. And I just want to throw in my statistic, which I was cite right. from Governor Schwarzenegger, um, who told me this in person. And then, I, and then I thought you've got to be kidding. And then, then he. You know, he, he's published it in one of his newsletters, and so I'm assuming someone fact-checked it. So I'm, I'm, I'm just citing him, where he says that, I mean, remember, the, the, the consequence of all this is more oil on tankers coming here to California. Um, his data, Arnold's data, is that um, if you take the 1515 largest container ships in the world, um, or ta tankers, I don't think it's contagious tankers, um, they produce more carbon emissions because they run on fossil fuels, they produce more carbon emissions than all the cars in the world put together. Or that's 15, one five, because they're so big. Imagine, you know, the energy that's required to move them through the ocean is so heavy. So, and 40% of the, this is the amazing point, he says, again, I'm citing him, 40%, 40 40% of the cargo on the world's container ships is in fact fossil fuels. So you're using the most polluting transportation mechanism on the planet to cart fossil fuels around. So it's completely self-defeating, even in their own kind of world of, of, of trying it, to reduce carbon emissions. It it's absolutely mad. It's totally incoherent. It's, it's just delusional. They continue to push this idea that we're going to live on sunshine and breezes and we don't need any oil, we don't need any or gas. Nuclear. But the truth yeah. is that... Most, or nuclear, most of the electricity in California is generated with natural gas, and about 9% is generated with nuclear. And it's the plan in Sacramento to get yeah. rid of both of those, to shut down all the gas-fired plants, to shut down the nuclear plant, the one remaining nuclear plant. What's the this percentage of natural plan. gas? And then at the last you say 40? It's, I, I would say it's well, probably more than 40. It varies, it yes, exactly. It varies from time of year. how much we're getting from, from hydroelectric. But if you go to caso.com, C-A-I-S-O.com, you can see the daily supply of what we're using. And you can see every day at 4 o'clock, the solar starts yep. to drop. And by 7.30 at yeah. night, we're using And then they brag about there's that what, you know, one day in the year, isn't it? It's sort of April or something. We talked about it last time it happened, where that maybe it's coming up, you know, where, the, where for, because of every, the, the stars align and like for one minute, it's 100% renewable. And they, and, they, and they sort of claim, you see, we did it. It's 100% renewable. But is that only, just... Exactly. Only until 4 o'clock. As long as 4 o'clock never comes, <laughs> you're It's good. amazing. Can I just make a point about this handing over the confidential information? And, and you said Soviet. The thing that really is so chilling about it. If you put that together with the other thing that they've done, which is being challenged now with another ballot initiative, but as a result, uh, it, it, which is the um, fast food thing, right? So, th so this is where they've basically taken over an entire sector 
and business decisions exactly. of the fast food industry in California now are made by some you know, bunch of commissars, effectively. You know, this this commission with politicians and the unions on it. I mean, it's just staggering that that's what it's come to. So they've done that for that sector. It's a, th This is now... You know the legislators are going to be you know, pouring through the confidential business information of of, of of our energy companies. I mean, it's just it's un it's really unbelievable. It is unbelievable, and I I hope the oil industry goes to court and tries to stop this and and doesn't pretend that they're going to be able to work with these people but because again, you can't work with these people. This is the classic story about you're hoping the alligator yes. eats you last. This is this has to be stopped. And it has to be stopped with rational discussions of the benefits of oil and gas and the safety of oil and gas in California, the development here in California as opposed to importing it from other countries where they're not as safe and they're not as careful. We have to just start to talk rationally about the consequences of these policies and not just nod and smile and say, yes, yes, we agree, but maybe just not quite as much as you're saying. It has to be an honest debate to stop the nonsense or there's yes. never going to be an end to it. And we're and all not, But I'd add to that. I mean, it needs to be that but we need to get organized politically to turn all this around because it's, I mean, it's every, at every level, not just sort of get people elected who have sensible practical approaches to th to these problems and will actually solve them rather than just making these these wild you know extremist sort of ideological gestures but also i mean as we've discussed today the the judges i mean you you got to have people who win elections so that they get to appoint judges because 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 if we if we you know you can say oh, well i hope the oil industry sues and whatever and they go to the courts but if it's in california and they come up against left leaning judges that have been put there by by you know increasingly extreme democrat politicians then you know, doesn't matter about the law. That's the difference between. That's why that. I mean, again, huge topic. But the 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 you know the 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 characterization by the left of originalist judges, constitutionally minded judges, is just completely bogus. Because actually, what you have is the judges that they like are ones that will actually implement a a, a political agenda. And act as politicians, whereas the whereas the originalist judges and, and the conservative judges just want to interpret the constitution, even if sometimes that means you get policy outcomes that they don't personally agree with. Well, sometimes you can go to federal court and you can get these state decisions overturned based on the right. United States Constitution, and uh, that that's probably a better path for people. Yeah, I mean that's a. I think the courts thing is a very interesting topic that we don't spend enough time on. So, let's save that for another time. Um, there's lots of things piling up on our agenda to talk to Susan about in the future. Thank goodness uh, we we get to talk every week. We've got the judges, the thing I want to get into that, the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act. That's going to be very important. Um, so let's do that on another occasion. Let's get into the real detail of that. Um, but for now, Susan, brilliant. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. Thank you, Steve. So, as promised, here is Jessica Milan-Patterson, chair of the California GOP, the newly re-elected chair, I should say. Congratulations, Jessica. Thank you. And, you know, you have now been at both two of the three uh, conventions that I've been elected at. So maybe you're my good luck charm. Fantastic. That's great. Great to hear. So, listen, we <laughs> I mentioned some of this at the top of the show. Um, let's start with this latest sort of Gavin Newsom. I mean, it's just... It's like it's beyond parody, isn't it? So because he's done such a fantastic job at solving all the problems in California, everything's fine now, no crime, no homelessness, everything's good. So so what's he spending his time on? Going to war with red states. I mean, what is this? He is the red state savior, Steve, and he <laughs> is going to come and fix all of the problems. I think first thing he does when he gets to these states is visit his old constituents because, he, as you know... <laughs> In the last couple of years, we have 700,000 people that have left our state. And these are the states that are getting more population. These are the states that are getting more congressional seats as we lose congressional seats. Um, I think that, you know, the people that elected him in California, and I wasn't one of them, but I'm still one of his constituents. I would much rather he focused on fixing the problems that he, quite frankly, created here yeah. in California. But what I mean, what is the actual thing he's done? He's set up a what is it? A pack? Ah, it's a yeah. political. It's a. It's not. It's not. It's not just you know another one of his you know annoying tweets. This is like a real organization that he's set up with a lot of money behind it, 
And it, and it's gonna. And I hear him say he's gonna. Go, he's on the road now, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. So he's saving democracy in these red states. So he's <laughs> pla- he's visited uh, places like Arkansas and Mississippi. Um, I think Alabama's on the list. He was just in Florida this past weekend for uh, the Democrat Governors Association. Um, it's it's really interesting to watch, and the fact that he's putting money into this. Let's let's talk about what it really is, right? You can put all these fancy names on it. What he is hoping is that there is an opportunity, some sort mm-hmm. of opening. I don't know what he thinks it looks like where President Biden does not run for re-election, and he mm-hmm. hopes to step into those shoes. That's all this is. He's trying to up his name ID, up his profile across the country so that he can run for president. He's had his eye on this for his entire political career, and that's what he's doing with this pack. I mean, it's amazing. It's so it's brazen. You know, that's the thing. It's it's not he's not even sort of hiding it anymore. I mean, ever since he's I mean, if we go back over the last what is it, 12 months or so, the first real kind of foray i think i'm right was that ad he did in florida saying that california is the real freedom state and that got a lot of publicity and you could say well if he wanted to put himself in the mix of people talking about him as a presidential candidate you know it kind of worked actually people no one was talking about him other than probably him and his you know his aides and now he was in every conversation for attacking ron DeSantis. And that's okay. You could say, well, that's one ad and it didn't, it didn't spend much money and it was kind of clever and it was a, a good trick. But now this is just, it's absolutely, it feels like this is his main focus. This is what he, this is the real thing that he cares about. It's right. so insulting. He's just got reelected. I mean, despite the nice hair and the great smile, um, he's never really been good at being coy at any of this, right? We've all seen <laughs> right through it, right? Punching up at, at Ron DeSantis is like laughable. You look at the way that these two states were run in uh, the pandemic era. You look no further to the difference between Disneyland and Disney World, where we have Disney in California moving its jobs over to Florida. There is a reason for that. Um, Watching, you know, and it's kind of laughable when he talks about, you know, these authoritarian states. What the heck have you been doing for the last three years? We've all experienced it. We all witnessed it. Our children's schools were closed longer than any other state in the nation. That is your legacy. We have 50% of the unsheltered population here in California. People are leaving in droves. We lost a congressional district for the very first time. We have the highest gas prices, the highest gas taxes in the entire nation. And you think that you can go and lecture red states where the people of your state are moving to so they can have a better life and a chance at the American dream? Come on, guy. It's it's amazing. It's really amazing. It's it's and, and the thing that I guess if you put yourself in their shoes, his shoes and his advisors and it's, it's this trying to position him. It really is for a for very narrow, isn't it? It's for the Democrat primary voter you know who's real the real activists who just all they want is someone who'll sort of fight DeSantis or whatever you know that's that's all it uh, that's really what this is doing because normal people will look at this and just think what are you talking about I mean everyone can see what's going on in California oh absolutely I think that you know as politicals we look at it like oh he would be a gift right if you wanted to yes a worse candidate, yes. President Biden or Vice President Harris, you have found it in Governor Gavin Newsom. This guy is just absolutely right, but he doesn't play in places like Ohio or Wisconsin, exactly. Pennsylvania. You know, they see what's happening in California and they laugh at it. No one is looking at us saying, that's the model. That's what we should be doing. It's amazing. It really is amazing. But, you know, he's still doing it. Let's just look ahead. I mean, let's I mean, by by the way, we're taping this on Monday morning um, for those who are listening during the week. And just this morning, I saw a piece in Axios that was about Biden now looking like well, delaying his launch of his presidential campaign till late summer. They were talking about July, maybe even the fall. He's not in any hurry. Um, I think the point of that is actually to freeze it all so that no one can get in. Um, because they're probably a little bit worried about that. They see Gavin doing these things. But let's just say it goes, that is the plan. But Biden does, in fact, announce, and he is the candidate. We can we have our views on that. But let's say he's the, he's the nominee. 
So then this vehicle for Gavin that he's set up now, I guess this is going to be what he does for the next four years because he'll be obviously wanting to go in, you know, Biden, let's let's just, you know, play it out in terms of how he would like to see it happen if you're a Democrat. So Biden's the nominee, he wins re-election, then it'll be an open uh, open nominating process. Yeah, because either he, way, Biden if he wins really... or if he doesn't win. Exactly. Either way, exactly right. So so then there'll be, so 2028 will be Gavin's, you know, shot as, as he wants. And so this vehicle he's set up will be, I guess the plan is to take him through till then and he'll be sort of running around the country yelling at red states for the next four years. My gosh. Oh, absolutely. Like this is what we have to look forward to as California <laughs> constituents of Gavin Newsom. But let's go back to the Biden you know, delay of the launch, right? Yeah. We saw how he ran his campaign in 2020, right? It was basement Biden, right? He yeah. did not want to be out there. And that's what they're doing, right? Yes, this guy's yes, calling yes. a lid every day at two o'clock. There is no right. interest to have him out there running a rigorous campaign and certainly not in the primary. So I think what they're actually doing is allowing for this lane to be open over here where Governor Newsom is, you know, pushing oh, up the stack and he has and, and that way, you know, there is some sort of, quote unquote, backup plan. Right. Um, but I think at the end of the day, President Biden oh. be their nominee and, um, you know, we will see uh, Gavin Newsom in some some way, shape or form out there, um, like I said, trying to be the savior to red states. It's very interesting. And actually, that all makes sense. And in fact, the focus of this pack makes sense from that point of view as well, because at one point when Gavin was, you know, in, in, in you know, he got, he, he's got increasingly kind of out there and, and, and outspoken with his preening and, and sort of saying, look at me, look at me. But, you know, I'm here. Um, at one point, he was criticizing Democrats. And he was saying, well, Democrats aren't fighting hard enough on abortion or whatever it may be. Oh, yeah. His and he, damn party. He throws in the a damn, damn party. Here. That's right. Yeah. But you know he's serious. Yes. Damn party. Um, and obviously that didn't go down very well. Um, and so I think this is an, a correction, isn't it? And, and so now he's just yelling at red states. And that's fine because they all can sign up to that. And so it's less annoying for the Biden people. And yeah, interesting. It makes sense. Yeah. Gosh, the back of Gavin's the backup. Wow. We're in real trouble. <laughs> no, I think as Republicans, that's solid. That is great news for us. I suppose that's right. Yes, yes. As a, exactly. That's a fair point. Exactly. That I, I completely agree. The idea that he's that he's going to go down well in, in you know, the places you need to win a, a general election for the presidency. Just a joke. I mean, no way. That's, but it's that, exciting as Californians, right? Because as we watch this portion with our governor... And him being out there in the forefront with this new PAC, we also, as Republicans in California, get to play a major role, right? Yes, with this the is the second point. So I mentioned this at the top. It's a really big change to explain what's happening and, and why it matters. So we have an early primary. And because we're, we, you know, the, the seat is essentially open, obviously President Trump is in there, um, mm -hmm. but he's not running um, as an incumbent. We have the opportunity to play a major role. We are an incredibly delegate rich state mm -hmm. and it's not winner take all by state. It's winner take all by congressional district. So mm. you'll see a lot of these candidates that are coming through our state. They're not going to be doing it just for fundraising. Often, you know, California Republicans get frustrated because we are that ATM yes. to the rest of the nation. And we'll see them actually building up these coalitions, going out there, bringing their message, seeing regionally where their message fits in best. And, you know, multiple candidates can pick up multiple uh, delegates throughout our state. And because it happens so early in the process, we may have a really big say in who our nominee is. It's a really interesting point. When is it exactly? Is it what month is the it? The first week of March. First so week of March compared Tuesday. to previously was June. Is that right? Yeah. So sometimes we have a June primary. Sometimes we have a March one. I know for sure in 2008, I think we had that really early primary too. Um, it's We're watching all of these different candidates that are talking about it, that are in. We just had uh, Asa Hutchinson who just got into the race uh, over the weekend. Um, we have uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley, who's already in. Obviously, President Trump's already in. Of, of course, everybody's talking about 
uh, Governor DeSantis, there's, you know, Secretary Pompeo, a real embarrassment of riches, right? These are statesmen and women, um, talented individuals, amazing leaders. And to be able to be a Republican and to get to choose from these types of candidates is fantastic, right? Um, yeah. What's really so interesting... Go on. Go ahead. What's really interesting is that we're going to be able to get their message and see them come through our state in a way that's, uh, you know, I wouldn't call it like the New Hampshire, you know, retail politicking where they're shaking everybody's hand. And it's how many times have you met the candidates, right? right. But a lot of people are going to be able to have that opportunity because they're going to be playing in California. The dynamics will change, right? We'll see, you know, front runner status change from, you know, all the way through um, those beginning states. As we see those beginning states and people start to get that momentum, um, the front runner status will change then too. Um, so it's going to be a really interesting eleven months that we have here in California. Yeah, it's real. I, I didn't have thought about that, and I didn't know the the part about the 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 congressional. Is it? Did you say congressional district? The delegates yeah. rewarded by Congress. So that so you could win. So let's say you have eight candidates, they could end up with you know, equivalent totals of delegates from California because they could, you know, someone could do really well in the Central Valley if they focus their Correct. effort there, et cetera. Northern, you know, that's really interesting. I, I'm not completely certain on this, but I'm fairly certain on this. In 2008, we actually had, you know, McCain largely won most of the congressional seats. Um, we had just come out of Florida was the week before. Mayor Giuliani got out of the race, endorsed Senator McCain in that race. But mm -hmm. I want to say that Governor Romney actually won two or three congressional seats here in California right. because Governor Romney and Senator McCain were the two that were uh, mm -hmm. on the the uh, ballot still at that point. It's super interesting, actually. I, I hadn't realized that. So there, there it really is worth the candidate spending time traveling the state. As you say, it's not just about doing the odd media thing. You and know, it's like great for the grassroots, right? We yeah. talk so much about the revolution and the people here in California rising up. This is yes. such a great opportunity to pick your candidate, to get into that and start building up your grassroots organization within each one of these congressional districts. And yes. if you're yes. chosen as a delegate or a uh, an alternate delegate for, you know, whoever your candidate is, then you get to go to Milwaukee if you win that, it gives you so much incentive to work and do the grassroots building, which is going to help our ticket from the top to the bottom. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and all that energy that will be part of that, what you're describing, can really help those of us who are kind of focusing on California because we, yeah. you know, we, we need to turn things around here. Um, and so I think that's really helpful and interesting. Great. Huh. Hadn't thought about that. Let's look ahead to the, to the other races that you're you're looking forward to thinking about in terms of 2024. I know you, you're basically, you never stop. Um, and you're so engaged. I mean, when we've talked about this previously, you know, in the candidate selection and the, you've got the congressional races and the state legislature and so on. What are you really um, thinking about for 2024? Yeah, so it's exciting. We talk about what we've done in the last four years and the last two cycles. You currently, we have a five-seat Republican House majority. And we picked up in California alone four seats in 2020, and then we picked up a fifth seat in 2022. So when we talk yeah. about the House majority, I often take credit for that House you majority. You should. I California agree. Republicans need to take credit for that House majority. Um, you know, When we're out there, Winnie, you look at someone like Congressman David Valadeo-Seat. This is a D plus 17 and a half seat. Um, wow. We've got Congressman John Duarte, who won in this last cycle. You know, both of them were running against 10-year assembly incumbents. Um, John Duarte's seat is a D plus 14.5%, right? So finding these candidates has been really, really critical. And both on the congressional side with uh, Republican leader, or excuse me, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, and then on the legislative side with Assemblyman Gallagher and Senator Jones, they're working so incredibly hard early mm. on in the cycle on that candidate recruitment because that's what's making the difference. You know, when we look at the targets and, and you'd mentioned, you know, this is Monday morning, the DCCC just sent out their list of targets. 
mm-hmm. um, multiple California congressional seats, and they have to go on the offensive, right? Because yeah. they keep losing seats. But yeah. even people like Kevin Kiley are on that list. Wow. They're not taking anything for granted. They want to take every single opportunity that they have. The good news for us is that they have to play defense in so many places too, right? Um, they can't afford to lose anymore. And when you've got districts like California 9, uh, which is the Josh Harder seat, you know, this is mm-hmm. a seat when you overlap our statewide data on this seat, um, our congressional candidate lost by 15,000 votes. Lonnie Chen won that seat, who was our candidate for Secretary of State, mm-hmm. by 11,000 votes. So we've got yeah. a wing universe of about 25,000 voters in that district in California 9, right? You go down south to the open Katie Porter seat. I was going to um, ask you about that, yeah. As you know, she's you know decided to run for Senate. No one should be surprised by this. This is the woman who, before she had even been sworn into this Congress, sat on the floor of the House of Representatives reading the subtle art of not giving an F. I mean, what a <laughs> message to send to your constituents that you have no interest in being there. She was eyeing that Senate seat before Senator Feinstein had even uh, stepped out of and decided not to run for it. So no one should be surprised by this. She barely won her Biden so plus district. Absolutely. Yeah. Scott Baugh's already in that race. The local party has already endorsed in that race, many of the local electeds. And so he's out there doing what he needs to do on the fundraising side. We'll see how that all shakes out over the next several months. Then you go down south to um, just south and there, also coastal, the Levin seat. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Congressional District 49 here. This is another great opportunity for us. Um, one of the closest seats in the nation. Um, we are hearing a lot of people talking about this race. Um, I haven't seen anybody officially get in, um, mm-hmm. but I think over the next you know month or two, um, people are going to need to to get in to get that J- June 30 reporting numbers up, right? right. They want to be show that they're a force to reckon with. And this yeah. is one of the seats, you know, in the last cycle, um, you know, arguably California 13 or California 49, California 13 is the one we picked up with Duarte. Those were our top two targets. Those were probably the two districts that weren't protects that we spent the most money in. Um, and both of them are very winnable seats. Um, obviously, we did with John Duarte. So mm-hmm. this is a great opportunity for us on the congressional side. You know, there's going to be a huge focus for us not only to protect the seats that we have, and they're very clearly going on the offense, whether it's mm-hmm. you know people like Congressman Ken Calvert or Congressman Kiley. They're looking at these what you know what we would call stronger seats for Republicans, um, and they're you know they have to because they keep losing seats. But we're going to be focused on protecting what we have. And then increasing the majority for Speaker McCarthy, uh, because we we know that our delegation, it's a coalition party. Mm. And um, so we need to make sure that he has as much reinforcements as possible to, you know, really be that check on the crazy things that we're seeing with this Biden administration. Um, But not only that, you know, we're we're seeing some real bipartisan things actually happening. I know. Uh, you know, whether it's, it's such a difference, China, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. compared to what you saw with Pelosi, who was just sort of not interested, you know, and, and le- just lectured everyone all the time about our democracy, but but clearly wasn't interested in actually making it work to get things right. done. Whereas Kevin's, Kevin's approach is so different. It's really refreshing, actually. He is an amazing leader. And to be able to watch it being showcased on the national level and what he's able to accomplish in these last several weeks has just been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So then moving over to the legislative side, um, there's going to be a focus on the protects. But again, um, mm-hmm. when we look at the data from the legislative seats and our overlaps with Senator Daly running for governor, Lonnie Chen running for secretary of state, we do see a lot of opportunities. We also see in 2024 term limits really coming into effect, right? So we brought the the 12-year term limits into effect in 2012. So mm-hmm. many of these individuals that have been serving in the Assembly or the Senate for the last over a decade, um, they will be termed out. And so there will be a lot of open seats that we have. Um, one that we're looking at, um, former Republican uh, turned Democrat, Brian Mainshine seat down in San Diego. 
this is a great opportunity for us down there. Um, so we'll be looking for those opportunities. We'll be looking for the places with overlap, the places where we may have just come a little bit short, protecting mm -hmm. what we have. And I think, you know, with the incumbents and the amount of seats that we were able to win on the assembly side, there'll be a lot more help there than there was. Um, you know, incumbency yes. certainly helps. So someone like Greg Wallace, who won his seat by 85 votes down in the Palm Springs area, right? He's going to have a lot more help coming in for him this time than was on than was on the ground last time. Um, so that's just one of those natural things that comes from winning. Um, but yeah. then we got to do our job and go on the offense as, as the Republican Party throughout the state. Well, I think what's so interesting about all of this is the way you've got, you know, you sort of tie all that together. The energy that comes from the top of the ticket race and the presidential, you know, can just help and lift all of this. Certainly. And I think that, you know, we have a real opportunity here, not just in California, but across the nation. Um, you know, we started to see that movement, um, whether it was in some of these school board races or, mm. or local council races. We have our California Trailblazers program uh, at at the California Republican Party where we re recruit and train candidates. This was an organization that used to exist outside of the party. And um, it was only focused on legislative races. And um, when we brought it into the party, it allowed us to give tools and resources to candidates at every level of government. So in this last cycle, we trained about 1,500 candidates across the state and helped them for the very first time, some of them run for office. Yeah. So building up in these areas all throughout the state, um, but also so the bottom up approach, but also that top down excitement that you're talking about on the presidential level and the yeah. commitment that the RNC has made in our state to help us build in communities that have been neglected by our party over the years. You know, we had the very first in the nation um, community engagement center. Um, we started this in Little Saigon in Michelle Park Steele's district. It's not mm -hmm. the typical campaign headquarters where you're just phone banking and precinct walking. We do that, too. Um, but there's also a Taiwanese dance team that practices mm -hmm. uh, in I our headquarters this. on Saturday. We yeah. opened up two more that are Latino focused, one in Congressman Mike Garcia's district and one in Congressman David Valadeo's district. This month, we'll be opening a fourth engagement center in Congressman John Duarte's district, also focused on Great. the Latino community. I think it's incredibly important. You know, it really reminds me back in the day when I was in the, um, you know, conservative party, you know, working to get David Cameron elected. And we were really, you know, we had a major program to kind of... Um, uh, you know, modernize perceptions of the Conservative Party to get rid of some of those myths that were out there and so on, and also improve our organization and professionalism. W one of the main things I introduced was this, I mean, there we, we called it social action. And it was it was saying, look, we're not we don't just want your vote. We really are engaged in the community and we're here to help. And we we, we did exactly this. We actually, um, you know, like we, 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 we encouraged candidates and local party organizations to do this, to sort of get involved and do things that are helpful um, and that allow you to be side by side with people in the community over the long term. And then when you, you of course, in the end, you've got to ask for their vote, but like they'll, you do that on the basis of having been engaged with them for the long term. It's just so much more persuasive as well as being a great thing to do in itself. It's building trust, right? Yeah. Um, and when you talk about the things that are most important within these communities, they want to make sure they have safe streets, which Democrats have absolutely failed on every single level. Whether you're a business owner or you're a parent, you're watching what's happening in our yeah. cities, and it's scary. They want to make sure that their kids are getting a good education so that the next generation is better than theirs. And they want to make sure that they have a good job where they can afford to live in a great community. And California Democrats have failed on every single exactly. one of those things. But we had to show up. We had to talk about, you know, actually caring about those problems and building that trust. And, and we're seeing success around our state from that. Exactly. And, and you know, let, let, let's just leave it there, Jessica. But I mean, it's a it's a real tribute to you and what you've been doing is that, you, you know, you've got that energy still, you know, for, for doing this because it is a long-term process. It's building and building, and, and you may not see the result immediately in every area at every cycle, but over the long term, there's no substitute for this. This is the only way to do it. You can't just like show up five minutes before and think it's all gonna be fine. 
No, it's the hard work. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Listen, really great to uh, see you. We'll check in with you as we did last cycle periodically through uh, between now and uh, 2024. But that was great. Re and, and such an important reminder about the presidential race and how it's going to be very different here than last time in California. That's great. And great to be aware of that. Thank you, Jessica. Great to see you. Always great to be with you, Steve. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for being with us for that episode. I hope you found it informative and interesting and inspiring in equal measure. That's what we aim to do here at The Steve Hilton Show. Remember to follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you back here soon for the next episode.